0: Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Escaping the Brave New World. I'm your host, David Gosselin, and I'm here with our guest, Adam Sidia, who is a poet, essayist, lecturer, and lawyer. Welcome, Adam. And composer. And composer. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Good to be back. Your title uh, keeps growing. You've been very uh, productive, and you, you keep taking on new projects. So, uh, yeah, you're, we're... You're keeping everybody busy mm-hmm. and uh, we've been busy working on a lot of different initiatives with the Chained News and New Wire, uh, putting out new original, I would, I would venture to say, uh, works of verse, fiction and uh, just all around things that are exploring uh, some of the, the bigger paradoxes uh, associated with these questions of beauty, goodness, truth. Uh, which really are, I guess you could say that, that sacred trinity when it comes to uh, culture and fostering a society that values the arts, that values um, real philosophical pursuit of, of, of virtue and beauty. And I feel, I, as I say this, I feel like all these things for many people are just words now. And that's, that's partly the problem, right? So our theme really is for this episode, a rectification of terms, which is a famous, uh, it comes from the Analects of Confucius. And when the philosopher Confucius was asked, uh, what would be his first um, uh, act when he, were he to be elected a governor? And he said that he would rectify uh, the terms or the names And he gave an explanation as to what he meant and why that was important. Um, And what he said was, this is from the eighth book, third chapter of the Analects. Confucius wrote, a superior man in regard to what he does not know shows a cautious reserve. If names be not correct, language is not in accordance with the truth of things if language be not in accordance with the truth of things, affairs cannot be carried on to success. When affairs cannot be carried on to success, proprieties and music do not flourish. When proprieties and music do not flourish, punishments will not be properly awarded. When punishments are not properly awarded, the people do not know how to move hand or foot. Therefore, a superior man considers it necessary that the names he uses may be spoken appropriately and also that what he speaks may be carried out appropriately what the superior man requires is just that in his words there may be nothing incorrect
1: we are reading the exact same translation it's, um, uh,
0: it's a fine uh that's uh, book 13. Fine fine phrasing so yeah there's a lot of words a lot of people uh there's a lot of labels being thrown around people throw around all sorts of words um but what do they really mean and and how do we get to this meaning right is it just by authority um you know we have Webster's Dictionary Uh, we, we have many different ways that we could approach getting to the meaning of things uh, but I ultimately, this is the question, right? It's, it's not just um, naming things or giving proper definitions, but it's also um, developing a method by which we can approach these questions beyond their surface level uh, appearance, right?
1: And before we even get to those questions, I, I, I we cannot stress enough the importance of definitions and how timely that topic is. Hmm. I will remind you, we had a nominee just confirmed to the United States Supreme Court who could not define what a woman was when asked under oath. Uh, So we're witnessing a breakdown in definitions and in use of terms. So I think rectification is exactly what is needed at this point in history.
0: Right. I saw a funny meme uh, that really stuck out where it was just saying uh, it was like two pictures. And the guy was saying, is it raining? And the other one said, I don't know. I'm not a meteorologist. Meteorologist. Um, Okay. So
1: there was another one I saw. It said uh, judge Brown had, had trouble locating the women's restroom because she could not decipher the figures on the doors because she wasn't an Egyptologist. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, it it gets kind of crazy when we sort of just throw it all when you try and just get rid of it all, um, you know, are saying that this is year zero. We're sort of redefining things, uh, you know, at their most basic level. And uh, well, there's always, I guess, there's always the question of intention. Why are we doing that? Right. Like if a word has meant a, a certain thing for a long time um why are we why do we need to to change it um and i I think we we talk a lot about you talk a lot about modernism right and we talk a lot about aesthetics like what is does beauty mean from a modernist perspective versus let's say uh, a classical greek perspective right what is justice or truth um depending on who you ask these words have very different meanings. And so there's no way getting around that, um, that it comes down to approach because people are, are they're using the same words and they may often sound relatively similar. You know, beauty involves proportion, it vol- involves order. Uh, it involves, uh, you know, pleasing appearances. Uh, but is it just that, right? Like it, what does it mean to have a society that uh, creates beautiful things you know is it just um the opulescence of roman uh emperors and their courts you know they're the reigning empire and so they have poets uh in their pay that sort of praise the glories of the empire and uh all that um is it just finely crafted lines you know um uh, compelling descriptions where people can feel intensely uh, or is it something more and, and how do we even approach that? So I think Confucius, uh, I guess, right, we were talking, Adam, about how in, in times where things are going relatively well, these kind of philosophical questions, these, these broader philosophical questions of meaning uh, might seem a bit more remote, right? This is like metaphysics. This is a, you know, obscure department of metaphysics.
1: Uh, it feels as though all the world's problems have been solved and therefore we don't need to worry about these issues.
0: Yeah, things are good, we're cruising and all that. But I mean, that's not where philosophy actually comes from, right? If we think back to Socrates um, and Plato, right? The The question of philosophy was really an existential one because there was a crisis, right? There was tyranny. Uh, there was the 30 tyrants <laughs> that took power.
1: Uh, you know, there was... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it goes even deeper than that. Socrates and... Remember, there were, th- th- we say they were Greek, but more specifically, they were Athenian. Mm-hmm. And they could have come from any one of the 50 or so city-states at the time, but... There, there was a special reason they came from Athens when they did. Athens had grown into an empire, um, you know, it, 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 an empire without a monarch, and it faced off against its arch rival Sparta and was defeated in the Peloponnesian war in which Socrates fought. And uh, so we, we, you had an empire and, and, the Athenian Empire—that was—it was the richest state in Greece. It, it, uh, it had built the Parthenon. All the buildings you see in the Acropolis today were constructed during the height of its rule, and all of a sudden, it was brought low by a you know, rather a much poorer, uh, rather less sophisticated power, and it created an existential crisis. And you know, the thirty tyrants were. Spartan puppets put up uh, as as sort of a puppet government, and after Sparta withdrew, the Athenians rose up, overthrew them, and then Socrates was put on trial um, for s- several charges, um, mostly impiety. Uh, he he had insulted the gods through his uh, questioning, and wa- was sentenced to commit suicide. His student, Plato, was the cousin of the leader of the 30 Tyrants, uh, Critias, who, who is the, a character in one of his famous dialogues. Mm. And Plato, uh, for his own safety, withdrew from public life. And he wrote uh, his work, his own philosophy, through the fictionalized voice of Socrates, mm. uh, both as a measure to protect himself uh, and uh, to sort of pay tribute to his teacher.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's great. And just the fact that you pointed out that Critias was a character in the dialogues. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, if we think of how Plato and Socrates and the Socratic method are taught today in school, it's, it's almost treated as like an armchair philosophy, right? Um, as if these people are just going around chatting and whatnot. But the reality is that it was born out of this very intense political process and the recognition that um, things just weren't working. Like there, there was something deeper. Um, there was something fundamentally flawed about the way people thought and the way, the direction that society was going in. And that's, some, that's not something that you could just fix by changing the laws per se, right? Because before you can change the laws or make the right laws, um, you should probably know what the problem is, right? And unless we can put a name on the problem, uh, we're not really gonna get
1: far. And speaking, one of Plato's most interesting dialogues is, is one of his last, it's, it's the laws. In which he he addresses these questions and you know, speaks very much you know towards the the rectification of terms. Um, you know Plato's Republic you know steals all the thunder, but I, I think to get a, a grasp of his mature philosophy uh, and a, a view um, without the exaggerations that the have the. Republic public is wrong, wrongfully painted as, uh, you know, some sort of societal remaking with, but I, I, I would definitely read the laws. Right.
0: Right. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of characters in Plato's dialogues and they all, uh, they embody different axioms, right. They embody different <laughs> ideas and outlooks, uh, about the nature of, of man and the universe. Right. Um, justice for, uh, one sophist is not the same as justice for a Plato, right? Or for a Socrates, um, you know, is it just the rule of the, of the strongest, right? That that's, that's one of the big questions in the Republic. Like how do we define justice? And there's this whole thing that, well, you know, if you're just defining it from the standpoint of of personal interest. Um, then, yeah, you know, if you and your friends can get together and you can overpower the other side and then what naturally, you know, comes to you is of your benefit. And that's the good. And that, that's a good thing. Um, it's bad for them, but it's a question of, of power. So there's this idea of justice is really just whoever's the strongest. Um, but
1: there's all sorts of paradoxes involved there. Um, Well, that's what Socrates or Plato through Socrates deconstructs at the beginning of the Republic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I forget the name of the character who asserts just that might makes right. And then Socrates. I'm sorry? Lysimachus. Yes. And Socrates says, well, let's explore this idea. And then that's what launches into, um, you know, what what is justice? What is what is the purpose of a society? How would we build the ideal society? Um, the gold, silver, and uh, bronze characters, uh, etc.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's a. I think it's important to see it as their their dramas, right? Their dialogues, where different ideas, different personae are interacting, and it's that contrast between the different voices that actually gives you the real idea. And so there's this interesting um, phenomenon in the sense that truth isn't really just a question of of naming things, but it's, it's really when you put these names and ideas into action and see what they look like under different circumstances and in different situations, that's where you can actually test your ideas. And that's what the dialogues are always doing. But I mean, this is what Shakespeare is always doing, and right. I mean, in a sense, that that dialectical method doesn't really change, right? If we look at the best uh, Greek tragedians, if we look at Shakespeare, uh, if we look at the greatest poets, there's always a counterpoint of ideas. I mean, this is this is Bach. This is classical music. If we're looking at uh, a Brahms symphony, or you know, uh, a Schubert lieder, it's 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 largely uh, the same idea of an interplay of ideas of different voices, whether it's in music, whether it's, you know, in the dance of of light and darkness, uh, shadows and brightness in painting. We always have that counterpoint. And I think, I thought that for this episode, what would be interesting is that you have different characters, um, ancient Greek uh, characters, uh, embodied in the Promethean, the Apollonian, the Dionysian, and the Epicurean. And these four categories are, are, are pretty interesting because they're all very different and they all have very different, uh, they, have, they hold fundamentally different axioms about human nature, how it's expressed, what a good or bad life would be under those terms. And um, I'd say that not much has changed uh, today. Today, you have a more narrow uh, idea of this, I'd say, with the uh, liberal versus conservative uh, binary, in a sense, you're going to find the Dionysian tends more on one side, the Apollonian tends more on the other side. uh, But there's also things that are missing, um, like this idea of the Promethean. It's it's not really... um, it's a qualitatively different kind of, of character. I mean, I, in modern Christian terms, right. Modern Western civilization, uh, the closest thing to Promethean, well, there is, it'd be, be Jesus. That would be the Promethean figure of, of Western, uh, civilization post, you know, ancient Greece. That's, that's not a bad first approximation, perhaps. No, No, Um, not at all. But yeah, so I mean, why don't you tell people a bit about these these different characters before we uh, we
1: start saying very controversial things <laughs> Well, where do I start I'll, I'll start with the Apollonian and Dionysian because uh, that Nietzsche was uh, that that was his first major work and he really outlined those two um, different, characters as they appeared in art is specifically the art of Wagner at the time, but those, those two ideas can be extended towards a more general human archetypes. The Apollonian is ordered. It, it, you, you might consider it, um, ordered good. It's, it's ordered, it's idealistic, it's measured, it's, um, deliberate, and you might think of Apollonian art as um, classical music um, uh, of the classical era, like Mozart, for example, or uh, Bach, a Bach fugue uh, from, from the Baroque, uh, where, where it's, there's a very strict form, it's very deliberate, uh, there, there's no story to be told, it's, it's the pure ideal version of art. The Dionysian, uh, by contrast, is chaotic. It's spontaneous. It's um, wild. It's um, natural in the sense of um, not yeah, not. It's rough-hewn rather than finely crafted. And an example of these would be, uh, you know, Romanticism. You know, the the Romantic a uh, desire for sincerity and spontaneity. Uh, and you might think of the, the impromptus of Chopin or the, uh, the raw emotion of, you know, much of Wagner or um, mm. uh, Beethoven's different. He's kind of a mixture of the two because he wrote in very strict classical forms, but with more of a romantic, um, impulse impulsive feel to the music um or you can think of um some you know better crafted free verse poetry as as dionysian you know dionysius of course is the god of wine uh if you if you if you want a, a good take on dionysian read um euripides is the Bacchae," which which unfortunately is is fragment survives only fragmentary but the, 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 the climactic scene is where the, the Dionysius, who has who is, is, is come in disguise, has the whole city uh, go into this drunken orgy that lasts all night. And the king, who was opposed to him, is literally ripped to shreds by uh, the, 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 the drunken women, including his own daughter, who who discovers in the morning that she's killed her own father by ripping him to shreds. That's, that's the Dionysian. They were
0: probably on something. uh, (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. I, 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 I've had a little too much wine. It it makes you want to fall asleep, but wine doesn't do that to you. It's gotta be some, uh, uh, special godly elixir. Uh, Something uh, mixed in with it. Um, uh, the Promethean, uh, is, is the creative. Um, and and I think it's, it's closely aligned with the Apollonian, but I, I think, I think I mentioned the, um, you know, Beethoven as a sort of a middle ground between Apollonian and Dionysian. I think that is, that is the spirit of Promethean. On on the one hand, it's ordered, uh, yet on the other hand, it's it's sincere. Uh, it's 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 the spark of creativity. Um, you know, you mentioned Jesus Christ. You know, just as you know, in, in the in the Christian view, uh, it, it was Jesus Christ is God incarnate who brought salvation to mankind. Mm-hmm. Just as Prometheus brought fire from heaven, that the God. Now it's it's a complete opposite worldview. Um, Christ, in the Christian view, Christ was sent by God be, be, out of love to save mankind, which had fallen through sin. In the Promethean view, the gods were withholding fire because they didn't want man to grow powerful, and it was Prometheus who descended and brought it to them. But in either view, you know, e- even though the, the opposite world views, in either view, the central character is the one who raises man from. Uh, uh what's the word from the from what will from the dionysian from wilderness from the purely uh, animal kingdom yeah to to the to, to the level of gods uh you might say to the apollonian so the promethean is kind of a me in my mind at least is kind of a mediator between those two characters now, the Epicurean, uh, it's funny, of these four types you mentioned, uh, the Epicurean is the only one named after a, an actual historical figure ra- rather than a, a creature or, or a character of myth. Um, Epicurean philosophy. I, when, when we say Epicurean, we tend to think, oh, hedonistic, yeah. you know, drink. But, th- that, but that's, that's a mischaracterization of what Epicureanism was. Um, it, Epicureanism, along with Stoicism, uh, were the two main philosophies to emerge in the Hellenistic period, right after Alexander the Great had conquered the Persian Empire and Greek culture had spread East. Um, and and the fo- both of these were reactions against Platonism, and they were very much Eastern influenced. Um, the founder of Stoicism, Zeno of Sidium, was from Cyprus. And um, Epicurus, uh, from where we get Epicurean, was from Samos and had spent most of his time in Anatolia. So these were very much Eastern-looking, Eastern-influenced uh, philosophies, and they're they're materialistic at their core. Uh, Epicurus's philosophy was um, the you know we we can, we we. he he rejected plato's idea of the ideal and um a a sort of ideal beyond the shadows of the cave and epicure just said what what we know is pleasure and pain and therefore the the happy life is one where pleasure is minimized and pain is maximized now it doesn't mean you know i'm gonna go and i'm gonna go and you know eat rich food and have orgasms all day and that's pleasure. Well there's there's a moral component too was you know what 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 physical pleasure doesn't always it brings regret it brings um is uh, uh oversatiation things like that so there is a moral element to the philosophy but at its at its core, it's materialistic, and so is Stoicism, its its sister philosophy. Yeah. And you might say, uh, you might extend that into modern times in terms of Marxism and its re- and positivism and their related ideologies. They're materialistic. They they deny um, a universal ideal beyond uh, the, the physical, the perceptible physical reality. And, you know, with, with Marx, for example, it's all about the class struggle. Uh, everything is a, about power relationships because that's what we can see in here. Um, or that's what we can perceive ourselves. Um, in, 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 in other words, it's a, a collective, um, it it seeks collective liberation rather than individual liberation, like Epicureanism and Stoicism uh, purported to do. So I would say the Epicurean mindset is the materialist uh, mindset. So that's my take on the floor.
0: And I I would, I would um, not necessarily push back, but I definitely want to throw in, I I would like to uh, add some, some nuance there to all of these. Um, I, do. Think, I think it's a great, um, because every, we're so bombarded with slogans and, and, and narratives and talking points from our own modern narrative matrix, right? Just always spinning out things about how you're supposed to feel about this, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, stand with Ukraine or, you know, whatever. Um, they're slogans, right? And it's like, it's the thing that you're supposed to think at that time. Um, and there's not much more nuance than that. It's very surface level, right? If we get to the deeper level of any of these things, we find out that it's all very much more complicated and, and requires, you know, it requires philosophy. It requires uh, a sense of reflection of how did we actually get here? And, and, and this is why I think it's really a philosophical question and why these, these categories of, of, of persona are interesting because they embody different warring concepts of man and we can find these today i mean i feel like i've met some people who yeah they're more kind of epicurean which i see as a kind of synthesis of the apollonian versus the dionysian you know they're trying to balance things out right like the stoic where epicurean is not necessarily uh like you said people assume for the epicurean just pure hedonism because there's a a strong materialist element to it but it's also cautioning against excess, right? So it's saying like, you need to have a balance, you know, enjoy yourself, have a couple strawberries, have a piece of cake now and then Duh. Yeah. So, okay. It's not the, you know um, I mean, it's not uh, necessarily saying anything very uh, uh, offensive or overly controversial, you know, it's pretty valid to a relatively uh, fair level. You know, if you're just going about your day, yeah, maybe don't have more than a piece of cake uh, every now and then. Exercise, take care of your body. It's very practical, right? It's it's utilitarian, and but obviously when you're dealing with bigger problems like the collapse of society, um, you know the Epicurean philosophy is only going to get you so far uh, because you're you're dealing with certain uh, you're dealing with a, a qualitatively uh, different kind of question and problem
1: right um and, and i think history bears out what you say too uh you know Stoic- one of stoicism's most famous uh authors was marcus aurelius the emperor uh who ruled at, at the the height of the roman empire just before it started to decline yeah. and epicureanism and stoicism were the in vogue philosophies there well guess what happened when you had the crisis of the third century and the empire started to decline, you had Neoplatonism emerge. And then when the empire was falling, you had um, Christian Neoplatonism become the dominant philosophy in Europe for a thousand years. Right. And, you know, and Epicureanism and Stoicism other than, you know, providing nice quotes here and there sort of fell by the wayside because they couldn't withstand the reality of a collapsing civilization.
0: Right. Yeah. So, well, here's the thing. So when you're dealing with the bigger picture, right? Yeah. The bigger picture is more complicated. It's just, there's a boundary condition. Um, And so that's where I think the Promethean uh, becomes way more relevant because it's not just a question of like nice forms and, and and beautiful things, right? There's a virtue. uh, I was reading a quote, Uh, Da Vinci had signed one of the, uh, the heraldic emblems that he designed uh, for the Duke, and it said beauty adorns virtue, which is very nice. I I like that. Uh, But naturally, uh, Promethean is, is more gritty, right? It does involve, you know, getting chained to a rock, it does involve suffering, it does involve going against the, you know, the authorities of the day. Um. It involves breaking the rules at a certain point. And that's where I think this idea of breaking the rules isn't always an interesting concept when we're talking about creativity and art, Uh, because that's the thing. The Apollonian is, is very much formal, right? There's, there's a set of laws and rules and you're supposed to follow them. And there are fixed forms, which there are, but the problem becomes when, you know, like, we i over at the chain news we publish new verse every week we publish new uh you know creative offerings uh from a you know a host of different kinds of people thinkers authors and um it's it's if there's there's some people that are trying to adhere to rules but let's say this if, if you have no talent you can still follow the rules right? You can still write in in rhyme and meter. And I mean, that's most people, technically most people writing poetry, that's, that's the best they're going to get. But it's like that for anything, right? In any field uh, you always have a thousand imitators and then you have the truly original uh, minds um, which is what we're interested in championing and which is why we're having these kinds of discussions because yeah, there are rules, um, and, and you, rules can be broken, but they have to be, we first have to know what they are so that if we're actually breaking a rule, um, it's because we're trying to do something that hasn't yet been done, which exists outside of the current, uh, bounds of what's available, right? So there's the famous story of Beethoven and his like quartets. And I mean, the people who had been tasked with performing them were like, we don't know how to play this. Uh, and, you know, Beethoven's famous response was, don't worry, uh, this is for the future, right? So he was doing something new, right? But he was still adhering to, you know, basic, you know, principles of harmony, uh, uh, right? And- or,
1: or, I mean, the forms are all, say, they're, 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 some of them had contained fugues, uh, one of them has a cavatina. Uh, the, the very last of the quartets, uh, Opus 135, is in your standard four movement sonata form. Um, it, it, it formalistically, it's just like his early quartets, but the sound is completely different.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing. He's, he's doing, so there's an interplay between the new and the old, which I think is, I mean, and we didn't fully address the, 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 the Dionysian counterpoint, but we're, we're going to circle back. It's going to come here that's going to get to that. But I think what you're saying now, uh, Beethoven is a perfect example, you know, because today we have the liberal versus conservative. I mean, that's the big thing. Uh, That's, you know, that's the, those are the two categories. So we don't have the Prometheans. We don't have the Apollonians or Dionysians as such. It's, it's a different brand. Um, I would venture to say that you have, Prometheans on both sides. You can have Prometheans on both sides. You can have Dionysians uh, on both sides. You can have Apollonians uh, on both sides. But there are certain tendencies, right? On, on, on the on the spectrum. Um, but we're talking about conserving, we're talking about the rules and how one breaks the rules and how does that play into creativity. And the what I observe. Is that when we're talking about let's say the conservative standpoint there's the idea of conserving certain things now the question is what is it that we're conserving right what's what's in, what needs to be conserved or and we're largely talking about things that don't change right they're supposed to be foundational um, we, we can talk about eternal things right there's a tendency to uh you know there's an emphasis on faith there's an emphasis on reason uh, then on the liberal side, and we don't necessarily, again, these words, rectification of terms, seems useful because when I think we think class, classical liberal is like a Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. right? Um, or even Matt Taibbi, these types of people. Douglas uh, Murray. Pardon me? Douglas Murray. Yeah. I mean, Glenn Greenwald, these these are very reasonable people that have very admirable qualities. They're on the liberal side. Um, The question is, so on the liberal, there's the idea of progress, right? That that has changed, that society needs to move forward. Now, the question is, I don't think fundamentally there is an actual, properly understood, um, the disagreement... Or the, the only thing that's really in question is what are the things that don't change and what are the things that change, right? Uh, because there are things that are always changing, right? Like art is always going to change per se, right? Even if you're following the rules, like the basic principles of art, we're not just going to keep making icons of the Byzantine icons of the Madonna, right? Like da Vinci fundamentally transformed painting, Right and and developed a, a very uh, an amazing quality of counterpoint, right and perspective that allowed one to tell a story that was just not possible with just a static image, right? Painted in like bright
1: gold. Um, and so- you could say the impressionists did the same thing in the 19th century. You know, bra- you're portraying the image as uh, consisting of its. Co- components of light and color rather than as a figure itself. Uh, Now that unfortunately led to cubism and, you know, the, the breakdown of, of, of art in the 20th century, but it's, it's the same concept. And I could think you could say even more and perhaps most fundamentally language changes. Um, You know, we, we do not speak uh, quite the same English as Shakespeare. Certainly not the same English as Chaucer. Um, You know, Dante wrote in a vernacular that up until you know only a you know generation or so before him was just considered bad Latin, and no serious poet would consider writing in um, in in what was the jive of the day. Um, And uh, you know, even in you know, modern Greece, there was a debate over whether the, the official Greek language should be classical Greek or, or the Greek that was spoken on the streets. And um, it was ultimately resolved in favor of the latter. But, you know, language changes, too. And because language changes, uh, terminology uh, changes with it. And hence, you need the rectification of terms uh, to square the ideas with the spoken language that expresses them.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, that's often, I think most, a lot of the confusion, right. Especially when we're talking about the modern narrative matrix and uh, the propaganda wars, right. All the the psychological operations to sort of frame and reframe reality in all sorts of different ways. Um, It largely it, it, it comes down to this question that, okay, so there are the things that don't change, which are worth conserving. And then there are those things that are always changing and naturally develop. And I think the key, or I think this is, the, this is where the question of wisdom comes in, is knowing how to uh, make that distinction. And so, for example, the bad conservative is going to be the guy that freaks out when, you know, uh, Da Vinci's painting his virgin... Uh, on the rocks and it's not like byzantine style uh you know just static imagery um and i've seen there there's an interesting uh presentation where there they this was being attacked right da vinci and these guys they're just de- they're deists they're uh they're humanists uh you know man thinks he's god that it's all bad um you know we're not we should be just sticking to Uh, these icons and not trying to like change things or, or, or be too creative because the argument is then that opens the door to all sorts of uh, deviance. That that's really the idea. Right. And so, I mean, if you, if you extend that logic, I mean, look at Saudi Arabia, right? Why should you have pop music? Why should you have music? You have the music of the Quran. That's what, that's what, you know, a prince could tell you. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, or uh,
1: or, the, or Puritan Massachusetts, you know, no, no dancing, no music.
0: Yeah, because these things open up to the passions and to, but so where where do we draw the line? And I think the take is that well, it's it's that we're not looking at the problem properly because we're not making a distinction between those uh, unchanging principles and uh, those the natural progress and change that is embodied by all life, the evolution of life on earth, the evolution of the human species. And so there's an interplay between change and no change, which is one of the central paradoxes in Plato of the one and the many, that the one always encompasses the many. And, and yet at the same time, that one is only ever, um, is, it can only manifest through the many, right? You can't point any one place and say, that's the one you know that's not the one, if you can point to it, right? So all you have is the many, the shadows, but the key is understanding what's generating the shadows. And depending on how we approach that, we get very different ideas of how law, society, uh, government should be organized. And just to bring it back to Confucius, the counterpoint to Confucianism and a rectification of terms which some people might feel uncomfortable with is because they might see it as legalism, which is actually the opposite of Confucianism, uh, where legalism is really about following a strict definition and, and terms, you have laws and everything to keep people in, in check. But, and I, I see I you- see, uh, I just
1: I, had a light bulb go off, yeah, so I'll, I'll let you want go. To jump
0: in. But so, but there's a difference because Confucianism assumes that human beings are inherently good. And education is a, co- is a question of cultivating these natural faculties that are in human beings and creating the situations in which they can uh, flourish. Uh, while in legalism, the assumption is that human beings are inherently bad. And so what you need is a kind of tyrannical system of rules uh, to keep everybody in check which really comes down to um, uh, reward and punishment. And the paradox that I would, I would put out is that how is, a, a, what's the difference between a classical system of conditioning with Pavlovian you know, experiments of dogs, you ring the bell, you do the right thing, you're rewarded if you do the wrong thing, uh, you're punished, that kind of thing. Um, and a purely legalist outlook, that's all you have. But then the question becomes, um, is that really a good society? Number one, okay. People are following the rules, but how do we know if this is a good society or not? And you can't really get there if it's only a question of following rules per se, right? Like what about the innate, what about the, how do we develop the goodness uh, in man or is goodness just the negation of bad? From a legalistic standpoint, of you know, don't break any of the rules, and then you know everybody gets in line. Not the yeah. best system for creativity.
1: I no. Would that. Well, and and while we're talking about Chinese philosophy, you have sort of a continuum here. We you you discuss legalism, which is just uh, rules and authority, is in and of themselves are. Are, are, are virtuous and therefore the, the application of of rules and authority is virtuous it, it's it's sort of um, procedure becomes substance yeah. on the other hand when we were talking about change you have you know the taoist philosophy you know which uh, if, if any if listeners haven't read the um the tao Te ching i, I highly recommend it. it it's it's very relevant to our own days and it's it's I would say it's Prussian in its view, uh, quasi you know libertarian, where the whole idea of the way is the path of least resistance. You have this world of forces outside that's applying pressure on you any which way. Change is constant, so the the virtuous path is to just go with the flow, ride out with the the change, flow like water through everything, and you know don't stand rigidly against it because you'll just get broken in the end um i would say it's almost dionysian in that regards and then in the middle you have the confucian philosophy uh which is is very much about it's 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 i would say the eastern analog to platonism and i probably have people vehemently disagree with me on that But it it, it recognizes an ideal, it recognizes um, terms, music, ritual, and that these guide uh, human action uh, according to uh, their ideal for virtue.
0: Towards the
1: good. Exactly.
0: Not just the negation of the bad.
1: And, and, you know, we talked about Socrates, you know, emerging from the Peloponnesian War. Confucius uh, r- lived in similar circumstances. Um, you know, China, it was called the Warring States period uh, during the, the Zhou dynasty, which lasted for 800 years about starting in 1100 BC or thereabouts. It, it, it originally was a feudal society with fiefdoms under the rule of a central Zhou king. But as the central authority waned, the right. king only retained a ritual power and each of the fiefdoms became their own independent princes. Right. And they were vying for control over each other and eventually over the whole of China. And it was in this uh, environment that Con- Confucius um, was born and in which he made his career. But as an advisor I, to several,
0: uh, I apologize. Keep talking. I just have to plug in my computer. I, okay, okay. I'm listening.
1: I'm, Confucius made his career as an advisor to several of these princes, uh, and, and I think the times brought him forth because the the, the chaos, uh, the lack of stability, uh, the lack of control. Called into question, well, what is what is good, what is virtue, what is reality? How do we conduct ourselves in these situations? Right. Um, and in fact, the the Chinese have a term for the period. It was called the Thousand Schools of Thought, which is a obviously hyperbole. But Confucius wasn't the only one. Um, there, there was also another philosopher, Mozi. Uh, at the same time, whose outlook was benevolence, um, it, we it, we would kind of call it hippieism today. You know, it was, it was it's very impractical, but it's you know application of love and kindness and and, and sort so there
0: there were other
1: schools of thought. I'm sorry,
0: Falun Gong style.
1: Yeah, and I wonder what how how much influence uh, he had on that philosophy. And interestingly, um, about two centuries after Confucius, uh, the state of Qin unified all the warring states under its rule, and and the Qin king took the new title emperor, and he adopted legalism as official Chinese philosophy, and his rule was remembered by later generations as utter tyranny. And his dynasty collapsed as soon as he died after lasting only 15 years. Uh, And under the succeeding Han dynasty, the official Chinese state philosophy returned to Confucianism, or it became Confucianism, um, because legalism was seen as, um, you know, I won't, I won't go so far as to say evil, but it didn't achieve good. It didn't achieve virtue.
0: Well, they had to burn a lot of opposition, right? They had to, to do a lot of that uh, stuff to make it happen.
1: Yeah, there, there's, yeah there's, there's debate over how, how true or how comprehensive it was. But yeah, the Qin Emperor uh, burned, burned previous books and, and buried scholars alive in efforts to create a year zero uh, so that uh, none of the works of the preceding centuries could be used against him. Um, and and supposedly, uh, Sima Qian, uh, the, the grand historian, as he's called in China, discovered uh, bamboo strips with the histories written that had escaped the burning, and that enabled him to write the history of China going back to the prehistoric times.
0: Mm. Yeah, So, I mean, I think the important takeaway here is that you have this thing everywhere, right? You can switch the frame, uh, switch the civilization, and you're going to find certain uh, ideological and epistemological tendencies. And as we said, the language, these languages are different. Languages change and these are different languages. So they have their own, uh, you know, sets of imagery. Um, and predicates and ways to get across identifying certain paradoxes. But uh, all the more, I mean, I think today, uh, getting back to a rectification, the West is very much in need of a rectification of terms. And I, I'm of the opinion that a dialogos approach, right? A, a sound dialectic where we can actually uh, have a counterpoint uh, between these different ideas and and personae and and play it out right conduct the necessary thought experiments to see what things actually look like in the real world when we test these ideas out and so you know epicureanism is fine in, up, up, up until a certain point when your civilization is in a crisis or you have the threat of global wars and all that uh, you need a bit more of a nuanced and, and, and a deeper conception of man, of of human nature, if we're actually going to get out of the crisis. So going back to the categories that we, uh, we chose uh, the, the, the Dionysian, I'd say, I mean, this is, this show's called escaping the brave new world. And if I had to pick one of the categories to describe our current, uh, culture, I would say, it's of the Dionysian uh, type. The Dionysian, I think, very fairly, uh, could be said to be the the dominant uh, archetype in our society. Right in a in a Brave New World system, uh, it's very it is very materialistic. You could say it's Epicurean, but I guess the thing with the Epicurean, and this is interesting as well, and and the romanticism is that it always, it turns dark at a certain point, right? Like it it goes, it works well for a while and you're always going to have like the decent balanced uh, folks. But as a whole society, especially when you have all sorts of uh, nefarious psychological operations and, uh, you know, a propaganda machine that's trying to uh, maintain certain narratives, uh, you know, you have to keep people... Uh, I mean, Huxley said it right. The reason that empires in the past uh, collapsed or failed is because they were not able to provide enough bread and circus. Straight, straight, pretty straightforward. That if you're really going to run an empire permanently, I mean, once the slaves get hungry or feel that they're they're being ripped off, uh, people start to revolt. Right under that kind of system, and so there's very much this idea of getting people enslaved to their passions. I mean, Huxley lectured on this extensively. He talked about creating a concentration camp with no tears, where people love their servitude. And it had a lot to do with introducing the kind of drug culture and kind of ritualistic, uh, you know, orgiastic culture, not necessarily in the literal sense, but just, you know, if you think about just the 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 music, if you go back to Woodstock, right? You, you already, you got it all there. Um, and all that stuff is coming together. Um, people were told that this was like a new earth-shaking event. The stars were aligned and all that. Uh, and then these were, uh, as we know, these were the baby boomers that then found that they had to get a job, right? And they had to get in line. Um, and so there, that's the snapback to the Apollonian, I would say, if we're talking about a really... Uh, nuanced way of looking at it. Uh, one, but but, but but was it? Uh, well, hang on. Yeah. Just let I, I I would close by saying that's once the things it always snaps back, right? If you go to one extreme or the other, like the the rebellion against the uh, the baby boomer generation as well. Though they were rebelling against, you know, think of all the unjust wars, think of all the assassinations. Uh, MLK, presidents were being killed um, by a certain force. And there's always a snapback that, um, okay, so these were the, this is like the traditional system that we have. And you always have the people are kind of pushing back against that, but it goes too far. But then you have the, the, yeah, I mean the typical traditional view didn't necessarily take into account all these nefarious, um, Agencies, right? Like you were a conspiracy theorist if you thought that the president was killed by uh, more than just a lone wolf, right? You're, you're out of line, right? You're, you're, you're spreading conspiracy theories, if you were doubting the official narrative. And so I mean, I'd say that that's, there's always an attempt to, that's where there's an attempt to uphold a system using laws, and you know, definitions and da-da-da. But what about when that system doesn't work? Like romanticism, it was in many ways a, a pushback against uh the I mean the blandness, the rarefied kind of Puritan uh spirit that dominated uh England at that time. This was not a free speech kind of situation, right? People poets like Keats, Shelley. Uh, they were very much attacked for not towing the line, right? You were not allowed to question the degenerate hereditary ruling classes, which were assumed to be superior. That's not something you could do. So obviously, you know, you get the romantics that are kind of, uh, you know, rebels, right? That's all I'm saying that you get this pushback, but it's not like what was there before was necessarily uh, that good, right? Just because the response is not necessarily uh, the best, you know, uh, for a lot of people, there was a, there was a formalism. It was about keeping the serfs in line, follow the rules. Uh, but it wasn't necess- it wasn't educa- it wasn't really developing the creative spark in people, one could say, in the way that, let's say, a Shelley or a Keats thought about it. And I think the proof is that they were very much attacked. They were not poet laureates of their time. We're very much not poet laureates of their
1: time for obvious reasons. But you you could say romanticism was a reaction against um, the enlightenment, which saw um, hyper-rationalism, the imposition of rules and structure and you know it was inspired by newton's formulation of the laws of physics well great if if the universe runs by mathematical laws why not human society and that's what i would say Sorry, i'd say that's the apollonian in that yes exactly and, and it it had it reached its perverse climax in the enlightened despotism of the 1770s and 80s and then the french revolution which you know was it it's a chaotic period in history, but it sought to impose you know the the decimal hours the ten day week all of these supposedly rational ideas yeah. you know at the blade of a the guillotine then you had romanticism, which was the exact opposite of that it was spontaneity, sincerity, and that led to nationalistic movements and you saw its perverse climax in in nazi germany um m- most horrifically uh and then what came after that and you know i think you give the boomers credit by uh, too much credit by saying they became apollonians i think what you had next was the epicurean period right um where the the hedonism of woodstock just transformed itself after they got jobs into a more ordered hedonism of the mortgage crisis and the trillion dollars in consumer debt. Yeah. Materialism. Uh, exactly. You yeah. know, pure, what we got yeah, pure, what, what we would call non-philosophical materialism. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
1: and, and that's where we are today. And I think we are, um, you know, with our gerontocracy, at least in the United States and, the, the, the boomers clinging on, desperately clinging on to as much power as possible, we are about to reach its perverse climax. And, you know, right. we'll see what that happens to be. Right. And I mean,
0: civilization is getting to an interesting, I mean, the conclusion of a cycle, you could say, of, a, of an era. We're definitely at a critical juncture. And this is where I think uh, the Promethean archetypes become much more relevant. Uh, because the other ones are are quite limited. They're bounded by certain um, they're bounded by certain ideas that um, you know the Promethean is going against the gods, but the gods, the would-be gods, you know, today are like the World Economic Forum Borg Q, billionaires and oligarchs, right? That have an idea of now, you know, genetically engineering. Uh, mass genetically engineering mankind, making it more efficient, uh, you know, uh, identifying problems like a new global useless class. Um, you know, and, and there's this religion of efficiency, right. Where we're told basically the algorithms are going to be able to do everything better, uh, than human beings. So most people are going to be redundant unless they embrace a biodigital digital, uh, convergence, Now it all sounds very strange, but I'd say that in a sense, this is kind of one of the themes of something like A Brave New World, which is that you get these kind of perversions of of human nature and, and, and sound philosophical thinking when you're trying to maintain a system that goes against the natural laws of the universe. And when you have a system that goes against the natural laws of the universe, I'd say rightfully understood this is where you need, this is where the Prometheans have to step in, right? This is their time to shine because this is where you kind of have to uh, say, you know, fuck you to the gods of Olympus. Uh, but again, it's, it's guided by a love for mankind, which is guided by an understanding of what humankind really is, that there is something worth saving, right? Because if human beings are just, um, if you have the rationalist kind of view, deterministic, materialistic view, you know, the sciencey Sam Harris's in all of the world, uh, you know, where they're like, yeah, you can optimize your machine, you know, you should meditate and like, you know, take uh, these, you know, herbs to be in like a constant flow state so that you can be more productive. Okay, so it's like, we're, we're trying to make more efficient machines. But what's the point if it's all just a question of complexity and chemicals, right? If, if we're just a more complex variation of dirt and there's nothing like a soul or a, a creative spark, which makes humankind uh, special and, and worth fighting for. Um, and, and that that thing is, is the purpose of actually having governments and societies is to allow for that natural... Um, spark within humankind to flourish in as many people uh, and to its greatest potential, that's where, that's where the sacrifices come in, right? Because the suffering, pointless suffering is nobody's interested in that, right? But people are willing to suffer for, let's say their children, right? For the future, if they know there's a greater cause. And this is a problem if you're the gods of Olympus, if you're the ruling oligarchical class, the idea that people are willing to die for their principles, for a higher idea, something greater than themselves, that's a very problematic idea. That's not something you want to get popular, right? The idea that maybe, you know, listening to your conscience, I mean, is is worth more than uh, the promotions and all that, right? The, the, the materialist sort of uh, advancement, upward mobility within the animal kingdom. Um, so you need Prometheans. And I think that's where, that's where people are tested, right? Who, who are the people that are really able to challenge the, the, the dominant order, but with a vision, right? With, with a uh, sense of, of, of reviving the Promethean fire, of kindling that Promethean fire within others, which is very contagious. And I think we see it now that when people are so disgusted with the way things are, um, rather than this Huxleyan, brave new world, dystopian outlook where it's assumed that people will forget about beauty, truth, and goodness. Actually, I think what we find is that uh, the desire for these things grows. It gets stronger. And the role of the Promethean Uh, Personalities are those that are are committed to uh, developing and inspiring that and promoting it and creating the kind of dynamic where uh, you can actually have a real uh, change that's based on asserting the principles of natural law, right, against uh, systems of evil, I guess you could say, right, against the kind of Olympian or new Tower of Babel type transhumanist systems, which really do fashion themselves uh, as gods, ultimately. Yeah,
1: you said a lot there. I'm trying yeah. to... Um, you, For you me, archetype. I yeah. like
0: it. Like.
1: <laughs> uh, no, you said something at the very beginning about pointless suffering. And I'm not sure there uh-huh. is a such thing. Um, <laughs> suffering is a fact of life it's it's something we we all experience by virtue of being alive and you know it's suffering like anything else is what you make of it so um you know you, you find meaning in it um or you try to escape it uh, like the epicureans did and that that's uh always going to be a futile endeavor uh because everybody dies at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, so is suffering.
0: Well, that's, but what do you leave behind, right? I, I think that's, that's the extra question because if it's just, if we're just thinking of our identities bounded by our own uh, lifetimes, that's, that's very limited. In terms of how you'll see yourself in the broader scheme of things,
1: well, and that well, and that brings us back to Prometheus. You know, they they talk about suffering. You know, being chained to a rock and having his liver torn out every day, um, but it was ultimately worth it because of what he did by bringing you know fire to mankind. Um, and it and- was better than living under the the evil it it was it was worth doing it was worth enduring that uh bringing fire was worth enduring that for what it achieved um and and, you know that that gave the suffering meaning or or the um,
0: christians why were the christians allowing themselves to well not allowing but they were eaten by lions right
1: yeah, then uh, they, they sang, they sang joyfully as, as they, they went to the, and that, and that's, and that's what part of the reason why the religion spread so much is, you know, what was intended as a public spectacle, you know, made everyone else see. well, what do these people have that makes them react that way to suffering? Um, I,
0: I think it also emphasizes, though, it's the, the Christians saw the evil of the Roman empire. Right. And it was, uh, it was disgusting to such a degree that they were fine with dying rather than submitting to that kind of evil. And I mean, I think the kind of evil that we say see today is, is not very different, right? It takes a different form, but it's very much of the same quality. Um, you know, maybe they're sacrificing people in different ways. We don't have to get into that. Uh, But you have the same thing. And technically, if we're being, there's a continuity between the ancient forms of, you know, uh, Roman Empire, you know, feeding Christians to lions and uh, the way that the poor and the destitute are being treated today and the way that everything is kind of being organized um, to, to reduce the amount of people, right, that can be supported on the planet. Uh, you know, they're doing it in different ways. I was going to say, not just the poor. <laughs> yeah, not
1: just the poor, right. Anyone who's not in in the uh, um, the oligarchical class will call it.
0: Yeah, all that to say, I think it's important to appreciate the appreciating the nature of the evil and being able to uh, look that in the eye. If, if it sounds very Jordan Peterson uh, for, for our age, it's right, kind of thing you would say. Uh, but That's where the Promethean, I think, uh, or the Christ-like figure really takes on uh, its full meaning. You need that counterpoint between the light and darkness uh, to make things really clear, right? If they're not already. And I think art, I mean, a lot of art (laughs) is making these contrasts, right? To sort of uh, condense things and and highlight certain uh, ironies, and make people aware of that so that they can actually be uh, conscious actors in the, in the drama that they're in, whether they know it or not. So yeah, this is, um, I mean, we're only, we're only scratching the surface, but um, I feel like these archetypes are, are definitely worth reflecting on. And um, do, do you have any closing thoughts,
1: Adam? I have a lot of thoughts. So now, are there any ones I want to close with? Yeah, you have a good close. Uh, well, okay, just just as we've kind of meandered all, all, a lot here, but I think just to try and focus everything. Right. Um, the... We, we, the Epicurean view isn't complete. Um, I think we can agree on that because the world and, and man are more than material. There's, there's ideal, there's spirit, there's a whole other element. And the Apollonian and Dionysian represent two extremes uh, that... The world um, is not purely one or the other. So we're left with the Promethean. and that 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 serves as on one hand, I think, a moderating force, a medium between the Apollonian Dionysian extremes. Um, and on the other hand, it it gives, A source of meaning um to what is an otherwise um cold materialistic worldview um that really is devoid of any inspiration or um you know motivation to uh, deal with the world as it is
0: and i guess we could just add It's also a counterpoint to the Zeusian, which we didn't define, but should probably be clear, right? The Promethean is a counterpoint to the Zeusian, which is the other uh, Shakespearean uh, character. Well, Greek tragic character type, you could say,
1: but... Yeah, the the Zeusian is self-serving, the Promethean...
0: It's the oligarchical.
1: Yes. Yes, so... I think, does that bring us uh, full circle, at least for this show? I mean, it it opens up a whole other series of discussion points, but. It
0: opens up a whole, a whole lot of things. And um, yeah, I think that was the purpose. Uh, So yeah, I think this is a good place to end, Uh, you know, as our listeners. I mean, maybe uh, as a, as a takeaway, you know, where do you fall? on that spectrum of these classical categories, the Epicurean, the Apollonian, uh, the Dionysian, the Promethean, or hey, maybe we even have some Zeusians listening. I doubt it. but And, uh, and do you want to be there? Yeah. Where, where do you fall? And um, how do you feel about that? <laughs> and uh, yeah, maybe just take some time to think about it. And uh, feel free to let us know, uh, you know, leave a comment or something. Uh, and we're going to be developing all these themes further and and throwing way more uh, into the discussion next time. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Uh, we'll see everybody shortly.